There is a four phases to most businesses. We're all about making money. Okay, that's fine. Good. At least you exist. The second idea is actually my customers are the people that pay us. So the customer is king. This is the second level of development or enlightenment, if you will, in terms of and most companies have figured out actually that the customer is important and they lost the plot. All of a sudden, the internet will come up and everyone now is talking about customer centricity. Only about one quarter of them are doing it well and the rest are all still paying lip service to it. The thing that gets that customer centricity to work is to have enlightened and engaged employees. So my attitude is to say you should be employee first, customer centric. Welcome to Super Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Shahid Durrani. Today we have with us Minter Dial. Minter is an elevator, international professional speaker, author, and filmmaker. Welcome to our show, Minter. Shahid, many thanks for having me on. My pleasure. And, and you're a filmmaker. That's a very nice combination. I, have, I haven't come across someone that also was a filmmaker. So is there a story behind that you would like to share? There certainly is. I would say, Shahid, that somehow the, the thing that connects everything I do is always telling stories. And my pleasure has been figuring mm -hmm. out how to tell stories across different media. And so generally speaking, the stories I tell are, are usually oral stories on stage. When I was running a company, I would tell the brand story over and over again. And then I've written... Uh, one novel, maybe a hundred short stories, a couple hundred of poems. And I'd never actually practiced the art of filmmaking itself. I used to do 30 second spots, ads, which some kind of story that you try to generate, slip it in. Uh, but the film that I ended up doing was a documentary film, biography of my grandfather, who was killed in the Second World War. And so there's the story of him and his love with his wife, my grandmother. There's the story of the war. And then there's the story of when he doesn't come back, what happens to the rest of the family. So that's essentially the story. It's called The Last Ring Home. It's also the subject of a book by the same name. And it's on television in North America pretty much every year. And sometimes down in Australia and New Zealand too. Wonderful. So that is a best format to tell stories. Are you going into that route, continue to develop films in the future? or I, I haven't. Uh, this was a monumental project that basically took 25 years to research. Mm -hmm. I interviewed 130 veterans oh. in the Second World War. So it's a, like a story that I carry. And what's beautiful about stories, it may or may not be the best medium to use. It certainly is a different one than when you use, for example, a book or so on. But what's been glorious is to see how this story begets other stories. And recently, a woman saw my film, said, oh my gosh, I love that story. I have a similar story. And it eventually has now created her own film. And I'm going to be going to the premiere of that in San Diego, January 8th. So that's the Wonderful. extent of the continuation no, for, of my story. 
definitely telling stories is something that you habitually enjoy. Was this something that you were involved in growing up as well in your in your younger years? So my younger years, I was mostly at boarding school. I was sent away, but I enjoyed it from the age of seven onwards. And in the British boarding school system, huge emphasis on things like the thespian arts and theater. So I used to do maybe one or two plays a year. And then when I went to university in America, I studied trilingual literature. So I would read about a novel a day in one or other language. So I've been surround sounded. I can't say it's my parents who injected it into me, but I did take it on and love the idea of stories and the art of communication, including conversation. Yes. And you learn to properly communicate or was that natural for you? Uh, there's a couple of things in that. I think the in definition of, of intelligence is to be able to make sense, uh, both in the way that you speak and the way that you understand. So it's important when you are speaking to understand to whom you are talking and addressing them in a way that they understand. So that means adjusting, for example, the way you speak to a, a room full of seven-year-olds or a room full of 95-year-olds. <laughs> because maybe they have hard of hearing, <laughs> for example, but that will have different contexts mm. and such. And so it's, a, it's the art of adapting yourself to the audience. And the second thing is the pleasure of learning how to speak and communicate in different languages. A, once you understand and speak other languages, it really reshapes the language that you originally have. You, let's say your mother tongue, it puts things into perspective. It shows there are holes in maybe in your language or there are different constraints in each language, and that's something I deeply enjoy. Which other languages do you know? Are there are those that I then, when we speak languages, you can't bluff these things, like because you, you say you speak a language and the other person speaks it, they will test you. So you need to be really real about that with yourself, <laughs> self-aware. Yeah. I am mm -hmm. very mm. fluent in French. I am fluent in Spanish. Mm. I'm good at Italian. I learned a good level. Let's say I say level three out of six in Russian, and I got to a level three, but I'm no longer a level three in German. I learned enough to get around in Japanese, and I also learned 300 words and enough to get around in Zulu. Uh, so I think that really is the wow. gamut of my languages. Wonderful. When it comes to luxury marketing, can you explain in your own words what that is for anyone that doesn't know? For me, first thing that comes to mind is luxury goods, selling luxury goods to people, consumers, that type of marketing. But if you can elaborate on that and then what kind of unique challenges or opportunities that you gain from that type of marketing into overall branding and marketing. I think. I never did proper luxury marketing. At L'Oreal, they don't really know what lu true luxury is, as far as I'm concerned. They have accessible luxury, mm -hmm. which is very different. I did, at one point in my life, work for an investment bank. And on the side, my side hustle was to craft hand-sewn leather bags for $5,000 and up. This was back in the 1980s. And I would have characterized that as a luxury market that I really practice the art. And so for me, 
luxury over the last 20 years has actually radically changed. In the end of the day, what is luxury is must be some kind of rare resource and something rare. The way the internet has made everything available and out there has changed the distribution mechanisms for luxury. So that's radically changed how we can approach luxury as opposed to only having the store on the Champs-Élysées or Rue de la Paix in Paris or whatever. You now have to figure mm -hmm. out how to be broadly distributed because rich customers are also online and expect to be treated in a different way. So luxury marketing, I think, needs to have a degree of innovation has to have a superlative surround sound service. So not just the marketing piece, but the way the brand comes alive in all aspects of the value chain. And the trick is knowing against whom you should be benchmarking. One of the errors that a lot of luxury marketers do is they start benchmarking their marketing just against other luxury brands in their industry. I would say it's important to, for example, well, you have to kick butt when it compares to Amazon's customer service, which of course isn't luxury. And a lot of luxury companies struggle to even have the basic level of customer service that Amazon has. So that is an area. So you need to figure out who you're benchmarking against and you need to be better than that. So it definitely sounds a lot about luxury marketing, though, even though you just had that one experience. Is that something that you help companies with as of today? I don't go down into the granularity of the marketing per se. What I will do is look at the mm. brand leadership. Because for me, one of the things that I learned when I was at L'Oreal was to understand the power of a real brand. And a lot of brands are very lightweight in my definition, and especially luxury brands. They want to base their positioning on founded in 1828, as if that's enough with a beautiful logo and perhaps a nice store. But what for me is important in brand and the brand strategy stuff that I talk about is figuring out what your brand feels like for your employees straight through the value chain, which means things like what behavior, what symbols, what vocabulary makes your brand come alive inside and outside the organization. So it, it can't be just a logo on the outdoor, a beautiful shiny C and a D. It can't be just a phenomenal product. That those are basics. What is it? How are you making the world a better place? And how can you make your employees feel mm -hmm. deeply engaged at a personal level in your organization? And where a lot mm -hmm. of luxury brands fail on this is that many of their employees can't even afford the products that they're selling. And so how do you accommodate that gap between the employees and the Good customer? Point. Yeah. That's a great point there. I never thought about the, the dynamics because a lot of these luxury brands have employees. And if you're driven by purpose, for example, if a luxury brand is driving their business through purpose, how do you communicate that purpose with the people that are basically the foundation of the product? An example of this, Shahid, is in hairdressing. 
So that was an area I spent 16 mm -hmm. years in, and I know many of the hairdressers in and around the salons of Toronto, to name just a few. But the challenge is when you want to be an upscale hairdresser and, and you want to have clients who are going to pay $200, $500 Canadian for a color, for example, that's quite a lot of money for a lot of people. The people who can afford that come from a different ilk than the hairdressers who are typically putting the color on because hairdressers typically aren't the wealthiest people. So how do mm. they connect in? And, and how do you make that mm. relevant, a relevant experience? So you can just go around the edges of that and make sure you're doing the pampering. But there's also things like personal connections, conversations. When you sit in the chair in a hairdressing salon, you might be doing the person's doing the color, but what are you going to talk about? How do you make that a relevant experience, both for the employee and the customer who's getting her hair colored? So these are types of things that luxury brands, whatever their industry, whoever's delivering the experience need to figure out. It's getting fine-tuned to understand that relationship and then come up with ideas. Well, it means in that relationship and in those conversations, making the brand come alive. So mm -hmm. uh, it's a deeper training, a deeper understanding of what your brand stands for, and then trying to convert words like values into expressions that are observable behaviors, words that make that brand come alive. And it has to be coming alive for the employee as well, not just for the customer who's sitting in the chair or standing across the counter mm -hmm. looking at these fine jewels or whatever they're doing. You've got to be able to make that brand come alive internally and externally. And, and the, generally speaking, a lot of brands mm -hmm. miss that point. They talk about employer branding, a great place to work, but that generally is dissociated from the brand purpose. It's, we just have, we have very clean offices. We have a little baby foot table to play. Great. What's the link between what you're trying to achieve as an organization, as a brand, and how are you trying to make the world a better place? And how can you make the employees' lives better as well, not just pay, paying them at the end of the week? You speak about crisis of meaning. Can you elaborate on that and how can that be incorporated in the brand marketing? This is a huge topic, Shai. The subject of my new book, which is um, about trying to have more meaningful conversations, both in life mm -hmm. and at work. And uh, the crisis of meaning. Well, my observation is that we are struggling to find meaning in our lives. There, there's been a, a great awareness to things like mental health and also Maslow's pyramid of needs with the self-actualization. This idea that the highest form of civilization is to self-actualize. And, and that will provide a form of meaning. The issue is we've gotten into a very divisive, very individualized world. And the realest meaning that's out there is to being of service for others. And, and so when you're highly focused on yourself, many people have forgotten the idea of being a service to others, subjugating their ego to another group or a bigger association. And in this, there has been a, a massive, alongside of the problem with mental health, or maybe even 
the, the causing the mental health is that people have lost touch with who they really are. They haven't had a, they, they, they've lost touch with reality. They're so ex absorbed by themselves and without any real, true, deep challenges, like having to deal with, for example, a war or a near-death experience like you had. These things, we, we start thinking, well, what's meaningful? My car is meaningful. Or my little broken finger is, is a real problem. And in this lack of self-knowledge, lack of real awareness, and lack of attachment to reality, this is where we have this existential crisis of meaning. And just to finish, what I think companies can be doing in order to make that good is to spend time, allocate resources for their employees and their teams to actually spend time thinking about who they are and how working at your company can correspond and or fulfill that person's personal mission as well. Not just the professional, but the personal mission, your personal North Star. And that's where you get deeper fulfillment, a sort of a jigsaw puzzle, because it's never perfect, it's always messy, but allows you to have a greater sense of meaning because what you're doing at work is meaningful. It's of service to others. It's in relationship with others and is trying to make the world a little bit better. Very good, Mentor. And you'll see that companies are very much focused on their results and boosting those results, getting more sales, getting the numbers. The force that we put into business to make it work, to make it grow. How do you feel purpose can be injected into that kind of environment for a business owner, what benefits could they see if they start operating with a self-awareness and a self-purpose into that company? So great question. And the answer to that is nuanced and highly pragmatic. The point that I'm going to talk about is that you, one can't look at it as striving for perfection. It's a messy world, and sometimes you just got to do what you got to do to get the business in. So, for example, all discussions about branding and beautiful logos, really, if you're struggling to make ends meet, let's not focus on that because you got to survive, pay the rent, pay the salaries, and move along. So a dose of practical pragmatism, let's say, is, is needed. But my observation is that if you are led by the desire for profit or led by the desire to perform and pay off your shareholders. That is, it can work, but it generally has two downfalls. First of all, short-term and burnout or cyclical mm. burnout, because that this is generally what happens. Yes. The thing that mm -hmm. creates a deeper sense of energy that allows you to deal with all the shit that goes down, because that's what happens, in life and at work is to have a sense that of why you're doing what you're doing. There's a four phases to most businesses. We're all about making money. Okay. That's fine. Good. At least you exist. The second idea is actually my customers are the people that pay us. So the customer is king. This is the second level of development or enlightenment, if you will, in terms of and most companies have figured out actually that the customer is important. And 
they lost the plot. All of a sudden, the internet will come up, and everyone now is talking about customer centricity. Only about one quarter of them are doing it well, and the rest are all still paying lip service to it. The thing that gets that customer centricity to work is to have enlightened and engaged employees. So my attitude is to say you should be employee first, customer centric. So focus on the employee experience and how are they going to be engaged, fulfilled to treat the customers. And the way to get your employees long term engaged is to have a real purpose. And what I mean by that is also not some hoi polloi pie in the sky. We're going to save the world. Have something tangible. That means something in the daily lives of the employees and all the stakeholders throughout the value chain, and that is, I think, how you have a long-term sustainable brand.、Mm, wonderful. We, as individuals, we're always looking on the outside, saying, "If that was different, things would be different. This should move from here, or this idea doesn't work, and that's what's causing all these problems." We're always finger pointing, but in a similar manner, if we start becoming self-aware, start looking at what we can improve within, from our own self, that those ideas that we inject within or bring out can do so much more for the world than the ideas that we're trying to change on the outside. We will have a bigger, much bigger impact. Each person can have such a huge impact. On a change, if we start focusing within first, self-aware, and then out, and it's very similar to what you're speaking about in the company environment as well. You're absolutely right. I my third book was called "You Lead," and the subtitle was "How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader." So, in、yeah. this regard, I'm ex-、mm-hmm. extremely on board with this notion. And I, what I've been writing about recently, Shahid, is this idea of embracing imperfection. I call it the model of finitude, and it's something that、mm-hmm. I think people aren't comfortable talking about. In this model, there are things like we're messy; we have to deal with pain, and risk, and challenges, and ultimately our finality, our mortality. And as a society, we're trying to avoid that at all costs. Whatever we can, ways to avoid pain, whatever we can to make the world safer. This idea of challenge and death—oh, that's just a an aging process. We need to fix that illness of aging. We need to find ways to live longer, live forever, even in some cases. And so, this is what I call the model of finitude. And the lack of self-awareness has, in my opinion, contributed heavily to the mental health disorders that we see out there, and certainly are are, are making life in big offices. Unbearable, because you're not. You don't know yourself. When you don't know yourself, things are going to pop out: chips on shoulders, bad attitudes, or, or triggered quickly without holding yourself down and being accountable to yourself. Yes, it's like anything on the outside could just completely shift that individual. The pureness of that individual is, is so wonderful. The real them, who they truly are. But masked with all these ideas and the ego, of course, the thoughts, feelings, and actions, without observing them, you allow them to take over, and then you lose out on the true uniqueness of who you are for yourself and your company. 
So I completely agree. You just say it so much better. And I really enjoyed <laughs> meeting you and speaking to you and, and learning about all this. My final question to you would be, is what do you feel your innermost superpower is that got you to this point in life? Hmm. I, and I must thank uh, my friends at L'Oreal for bringing this out. I am at, I'm at once soldier and poet. I think of myself as a doer and a dreamer, and it's making that mixture work. So I love to dream, but I also am deeply linked into my wishes to be deeply linked into reality. So if I think about, I've written a lot about empathy, for example, I, I'm not a, a dictator of empathy. I want to be practical about it. I think it's a really important quality. It's a beautiful quality, like hope and progress are great things, and beauty is also a wonderful quality. But let's not strive for perfection. Let's not strive to make the world a better place. Let's strive to make your world a better place. Be realistic about what you're trying to achieve and don't go virtue signaling about how you're trying to save the world when you don't even know how to fix your family. Yes, so true. Thank you so much, Minter, for joining us today. It was, it was a real pleasure speaking to you and learning about your, your past and especially that film that you made and what you're doing for people because sometimes this type of message, it becomes a wake-up call an individual or a company might not even know this is something that could completely shift the dynamics of their company and also their growth relationships because everything in life is a relationship. And you going out and providing your time on these shows to send this message out can make a huge impact, not just for that one person that heard this message, but it could have an impact on countless other people while they're alive. If there's any final words you would like to share, please go ahead. What I would say is that it often takes having a near-death experience to get this mojo going. And before having one, here's what I'm going to say. Wake up. The thing is this, that very likely you think you have an idea, a general idea of who you are. We all rationally, cognitively get that idea. But here's the wake-up call. Consciously. It's a very mm. broad and vague. It's likely that's a very broad and rather vague thing. Could you put it down in one sentence, the person you want to be by the time you finished your life? One sentence. What is that one sentence? And if you haven't done that work, I would encourage you to think more deeply about who you are and what you want to be, and then lean into that. And by the way, it's never going to be a perfect sentence. It's a work in progress because it actually isn't about achieving the destination. It's about the journey in the first place. Spend some time, mm, give yourself yes. a gift. You can start with meditation, but give yourself a gift of spending time on being deeply interested in who you are, including your foibles your darker side, and not necessarily be transparent and show how your dark side, this is not about us being pragmatic, but just be aware of who you are. Spend some time on that and it will pay you back in volumes. Because there's this thing called authenticity. Sean. Oh, yes. It's brilliant. Oh, everyone says radical yeah. transparency, authenticity. Yeah, but I would argue that a lot of those calls for authenticity are because those people themselves don't know themselves, aren't authentic. They want everyone else to be authentic and, and transparent, but they aren't doing it themselves. So 
start by figuring out this, who you are. Yeah. Self-awareness changes everything. It's completely shifted everything that I do in my life because I always thought it was some other person or circumstance situation that was a problem or, or that needed some correction or needed some changes. It just makes everything so much more clear. Like turning a light in a dark room brightens up your internal world, but then that reflects in the world that you are engaging with. So I really appreciate your time today. 100%. And thank you so much for agreeing to help us promote this episode on your network. It just helps us make a bigger impact. And again, definitely keep in touch and we'll see you soon. You bet, Shai. Thank you for having me on. 